Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature a talk and conversation featuring Daniel James Brown. Brown is probably best known for his international bestseller, Boys in the Boat, first published in 2013. It tells a narrative history of nine working-class Americans who rode their way to gold at the 1936 Berlin Olympics. It's a story of young men who persevere against immense challenges and long odds. Brown joined us for Portland Arts and Lectures in 2021 to talk about his next book, Facing the Mountain, which on the one hand shares many of the same themes and preoccupations as Boys in the Boat, but also delves into a more complex and darker chapter in our history. Facing the Mountain tells the stories of four World War II American soldiers, men of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team of the U.S. Army, a segregated all-Japanese unit. They are all Nisei, second-generation Japanese-American who volunteered to serve in combat even as the federal government incarcerated many of their families in American concentration camps. As a writer, Brown occupies an unusual professional position. He is the teller of personal historic narratives, though he is neither a formal historian nor a novelist. In addition to being one of our great storytellers, Brown is a great listener, and his work is almost always a collaboration. In the case of Facing the Mountain, Brown collaborated with Tom Akita from the nonprofit Densho to learn the stories of Japanese Americans and to connect with the families and communities of those individuals whose stories are centered in the book. After Brown's talk, Akita joins him in conversation. We'll also hear the voices of the four men featured in the book from interviews preserved by Densho. Here's Brown. Let me start by telling you a little bit about how I came to write uh, my new book, Facing the Mountain, and, and why I chose the topic um, that it addresses. Facing the Mountain was born in 2015 when I met Tom Ikeda, uh, with whom I'll be uh, chatting here shortly. Tom, you should know, is the founder of Densho, the Densho Project in Seattle. And for the last uh, 25 plus years, he's been interviewing, videotaping, curating, digitizing, and very importantly, making available to the public on the Densho website, the um, firsthand experiences of hundreds of Japanese Americans, primarily Nisei, that is second generation Japanese Americans, um, and their experiences living uh, through the World War II years. In 2015, Tom and I were both on a stage at the Seattle Center um, to receive something called the Mayor's Arts Award that we have up here in Seattle. And Tom was there um, for his work with Densho, and I was there uh, for writing The Boys in the Boat. And I'm not sure, but I think, I think Tom spoke first. And um, as I listened to him talking about what he'd been doing at Densho, the work he'd been undertaking, um, I, was really, I was really sort of fascinated from the moment I heard him start speaking. I'd been looking for um, a book topic for some time. And I thought, you know, maybe, just maybe, there would be a story somewhere in these archives that, um, that would make for a good book. So um, after the ceremony, Tom and I chatted, and I think we exchanged business cards. Um, and, and he seemed really genuinely interested in, in helping me. So I went home that evening, and um, I got online, and I went to the Densho uh, website. And I started just listening to some of these firsthand um, oral histories that Tom had, um, had, had collected and made available. And I was just mesmerized by many of them. They, these were raw, powerful, emotional, moving stories, um, the kinds of stories that any writer 
uh, would be attracted to, certainly the kinds of stories that I was attracted to as a writer. I'd always been interested in Japanese American history for a number of reasons that have to do with my upbringing. But at the same time, um, I've always felt that um, the way Japanese wartime experience was taught in schools and the, the books that I had read about that experience always um, seemed strangely flat to me. They seemed um, sanitized or distanced, wrapped in euphemistic languages and sort of devoid of the emotional truths that I knew were at the center of the reality for people that lived through that experience. In contrast, the stories um, that I listened to on Densho that night and in subsequent days and, and weeks were raw, unfiltered, um, very impactful stories. And they made clear to me that, um, yes, in fact, there was a lot more to the story than I had been taught in school or that I had read about in the various books I'd read on, on the topic. Um, these were deeply personal stories, um, the kinds of stories really that um, any good-hearted person could relate to, Japanese-American or, or not. Uh, there were stories of ordinary people, which is always what I, as Andrew mentioned, what I'm drawn to, but ordinary people um, encountering extraordinary circumstances and persevering through great difficulties. There were stories of extraordinary resilience in the face of absolutely devastating uh, setbacks. There were stories of personal humility and the power that humility sometimes grants us, another thing that I've always been interested in as a writer. There were stories uh, of democratic idealism come face to face with fascist and militaristic authoritarian cynicism. And there were stories of people uh, working out their differences and learning to come together to pull as one and to accomplish amazing things. So you can probably see where I'm going here. Right from the beginning, if you've read The Boys in the Boat, you'll recognize some of those themes, I, I think. I certainly did. I, I felt that those stories um, many of them were echoing some of the elements of the boys in the boat. And as I looked at still more stories on Densho and began to branch out and look at other sources and other archives, I saw that there were, um, there were certain really broad themes at work as well as the things that I just mentioned, themes that in various ways I've tried to um, come to terms with or address in, in really all the books that, I, uh, that I've written. Densho, the, the stories on Densho showed different strains of um, courage, for one thing, and courage is one of those things that has always intrigued me. Um, there, there are times when um, courage is obvious, as for instance, when uh, men are fighting their way up the side of a mountain with machine gun uh, fire aimed at them. But there are also kinds of courage that are more subtle, like the courage that a mother has to summon when she's trying to raise children in a concentration camp. One way of looking at the boys in the boat is the story of a young man who um, loses his home and family and then has to go out into the world on a quest uh, to make a new life and find a new home for himself. And the home that he happens to find turns out to be this rowing crew. And of course, the story of Japanese Americans that I was looking at, many of these stories were about people literally being forced from their homes, struggling to create some semblance of home in barracks, in concentration camps, and then trying to return home, only to find in many cases that they didn't really have homes to return to, that everything they'd had before the war had in one way or another been taken away from them. So, so home and courage were two of the themes that have always intrigued me. And, um, and I, was seeing, I was seeing these in the stories at Densho. So many of these stories um, also just raised interesting questions about courage, for instance. What is the courageous thing to do if somebody comes with a gun to your door and tells you you have to leave your home? What would you do? I mean, if it happened to you tomorrow, what would you do? What kind of courage does it 
take to come to terms with that kind of a situation? Or what if you were a young man living behind barbed wire and received a draft notice ordering you to fight for the country that has put you behind barbed wire, you and your family? What's the courageous thing to do? And then there were the intertwined themes of patriotism and American identity. Again, a theme that's always been of interest to me. What, is, what does love of country really look like? Is it simply waving a flag, the right flag at the right time? Is it obeying unjust laws uh, within your country or is it disobeying unjust laws? How does one become American in the first place? Who exactly gets to call themselves Americans? And who has the right to say that someone else isn't American? All these sort of foundational themes um, seem to me to be at work in the sources I was looking at. And as I say, um, they're the things I've, I've always been interested in. But the problem that I faced right from the beginning in those first weeks and actually months when I was sorting through stories at Densho, the problem was that there were simply too many great stories to tell. Taken all together, uh, they paint, and this is Tom's great accomplishment, I think. Taken all together, they paint a truly comprehensive history of Japanese American life during World War II. But I, I didn't really want to write a comprehensive history. For one thing, I think that would be presumptuous uh, for someone like me. I'm neither Japanese-American, obviously, uh, nor in the strict sense am I an historian. I'm not a trained academic historian, certainly. Also, it's just not what I do. I don't really write history as I think of it, per se. I write personal stories that shed some light on a slice of history that I'm interested in or that I think needs some light shed on it. So as I started considering how I would take this material and write a book, I realized that I needed a small enough cast of characters to let my readers come to know each one of them individually very well, and yet whose stories, whose individual stories stitched together would form a narrative arc that would at least begin to reveal some of the essential truths of the larger story of the Japanese-American experience during that period. So I reached out uh, to Tom, and he and I began a conversation, conversations that uh, went on for a year or more, as he suggested different individuals and families that I might want to look at and I went off and researched each of them in turn. Uh, to tell you the truth, I kept asking him if there was one person or one family that would encompass all the key elements of the larger story. Uh, and whenever I asked uh, for one, he gave me five or six more. There were just so many. Finally, I realized that there was a central dilemma that I wanted to explore in this book. Um, if, if you have read The Boys in the Boat, you may recall that at the end of that book, I talk about a, a moment when I stood on the balcony of a boathouse in Berlin, the balcony from which Adolf Hitler and the other top Nazis watched the gold medal race in 1936. And um, I went to Germany and I had an opportunity to go up on that balcony and stand there where Hitler had stood. And it was a, a weird and, and creepy feeling to stand there, to tell you the truth. But I had a kind of epiphany uh, on that balcony. And I'm, I'm going to quote just a couple lines from, from the boys in the boat to describe what, what I was thinking. I wrote, standing there, it occurred to me that when Hitler watched Joe and the boys fight their way back from the rear of the field to sweep ahead of Italy and Germany 75 years ago, he saw, but did not recognize, heralds of his doom. One day, hundreds of thousands of boys just like them, boys who shared their essential natures, decent and unassuming, not privileged or favored by anything in particular, just loyal, committed, and perseverant, would return to Germany, dressed in olive drab, 
hunting him down. Looking at the Densho archives, I realized that among those hundreds of thousands of boys, there were thousands of Japanese American boys and that they had a very different trajectory going into the war than, for instance, my uncles did. To put on those olive drab uniforms and hunt Hitler down, these particular young men had to confront a more or less existential dilemma, one that most other young American men of their generation didn't face. In the spring of 1942, in the wake of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, thousands of them watched as millions of their classmates and their neighbors and their friends enlisted in the US Army and went off to defeat fascism and militarism. But when they went down to the enlistment offices, they were told that they couldn't enlist. They were told that they were considered, quote, enemy aliens even though they were in fact American citizens. At the same time that this was happening, they, in many cases, and their families had been forced from their homes, incarcerated in bleak concentration camps in the most desolate parts of the American West. They'd been forced to abandon their schooling, their jobs, most of their possessions, beloved pets, They'd watched in horror as their parents lost businesses and livelihoods that they had built up over decades in America. These young men, many of them, felt degraded and humiliated and hopeless, and perhaps worse, they saw that their parents felt the same way. So the question that naturally arose for each and every one of them was, why should they fight? and bleed and die for a government that was treating their families that way. It was an enormously fraught question for thousands of young Japanese American men that spring. Fraught questions and deep dilemmas are the stuff from which great stories are often made. So I knew that by focusing on that question and by young men, Nisei men, first generation Americans, I might be able to animate the larger story in a more personal uh, and meaningful way than I had seen done before in the books that I had read and in the schooling I had received on the subject. Once I began to focus on uh, young men of draft age and their families, I began to narrow the search down accordingly. And I began to talk not only with Tom, but with um, many other people within the Japanese American community that Tom very graciously introduced me to. Um, and in particular, I began to talk to the family members of some of these now old men who had been young men uh, at the time the war happened. If they were still alive, and, and not many were, um, I talked to the men themselves. I wanted to make sure that they and their families were okay with me telling the story and overwhelmingly, actually unanimously, amongst the people I could find and talk to, they were. Uh, and the process eventually narrowed the scope of the book down to four wonderful men and their families. Now, I mentioned um, some similarities between uh, this book and The Boys in the Boat, but I, I want to be clear that this isn't nine white boys in, in a boat. Uh, it isn't as simple a tale, despite some similar themes. It necessarily gets into more complex subjects and sometimes darker subjects. It deals with truly systemic institutionalized racism, not just institutionalized, but sanctioned by the US government. It deals with mass incarceration on a truly epic scale. Um, it deals with the wartime powers of presidents and whether there are any limits to those powers. It deals with the toxic power of language when language is weaponized against a vulnerable population. But it also deals with the antiseptic power of euphemistic language 
when it's employed by a government trying to cover its tracks. It deals with social and racial inequities in pre-war um, America, both in Hawaii and on the west coast of the mainland, especially. It deals with the psychological and economic toll of long-term incarceration of whole families. You know, it really was the only time in American history since the Cherokee um, were marched out of the Carolinas that an entire people have been subjected to this kind of treatment. And it dealt, deals with the age-old tension between what the law demands and what the conscience demands. It also raises some questions and emotions that may make some people uncomfortable. I get a fair amount of email uh, regarding the book um, almost every day. Most of it, fortunately, is very complimentary. But um, sometimes people write things like, uh, my uncle died during the Bataan death march. How can you be so forgiving of the Japanese? Which a question that kind of astonishes me. My answer, of course, to that is that I'm not at all forgiving of the atrocities carried out by Japanese imperial forces or Japan's militar militaristic wartime government. But the young men I'm writing about were American, not Japanese. Some people, even now, seem to have a hard time making that distinction. But in America, patriotism and national identity aren't contingent on race, religion, or ethnicity. That really is the whole point of America, in fact. Other people write, have written comments like, um, my mother told me that Japanese Americans had to be taken away to camps for their own good to protect them. To which my answer is, in what kind of country do Americans have to be protected from their neighbors by forced removal from their homes? And who exactly is it that needs to be removed in that kind of situation? So the story still touches some nerves, and I understand that. Um, but ultimately, I find it, and I, I hope you will find it, uh, a life-affirming story. In the pages of the book, if you choose to read it, you will find uh, families that um, endure nearly unendurable circumstances and young people who rise to face danger and hatred in surprising and often inspiring ways, um, particularly the four men that the book is focused on. Although I should say that those four young men are representative of thousands of young men who lived in very similar ways and displayed very similar kinds of courage. Um, it's been one of the great privileges of my life to get to know these young men and their families and to share their extraordinary stories with the world. And I hope if you do read the book, you'll come to love them as much as I do, because I really do. They're wonderful models of what Americans can and should be. And I think we would uh, all do well to heed the lessons that they have left us simply by the way they live their lives. So thank you very much. Well, so to, to get into this, uh, you mentioned that you focused on four men. You highlighted four men in Facing the Mountain. And I thought it would be interesting uh, for the audience is to actually talk about these four men and actually, in some ways, view them as you had to as, as a historian because you weren't able to talk with them when they were young men. You had to, you know, you had to look at them or talk with them when they were much older. And so let's, let's, let's start with uh, the first one, Gordon Hirabayashi. Uh, you know, someone you know, we know pretty well in Seattle because he's a Seattle native and uh, spent a lot of time here. Why did you choose Gordon as one of the four? So Gordon, uh, such an interesting guy, such an interesting young man. And, and through his whole life, he was just absolutely, as you know, you spent many, many hours talking to him. Just a really uh, interesting character. But he's uh, very different from the other characters in the book in that um, he took a stance very much opposing participation in uh, the um, military endeavor, but also opposing the incarcerations in the camps and opposing the curfews. Gordon was a student at the University of Washington when the war began. He was a uh, Quaker. He was a young man who had very strong convictions and was very determined to live his life according to his principles. 
So one of the first things that happened in Seattle was that uh, Japanese Americans uh, had a 8 p.m. curfew. Nobody of Japanese ancestry was allowed to be out on the streets of Seattle after 8 p.m. And Gordon took it upon himself one day to simply say, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to disobey that curfew. And in fact, he, um, he began to keep a, a sort of diary in which he uh, documented all the occasions when he was uh, violating the curfew. So you know, Gordon kind of, in my mind, when you chose him, yeah, represented this sort of resistance in terms of, of fighting back, which oftentimes isn't told so much in the Japanese American story during World War II. And it, we, we thought it'd be interesting to show a clip of Gordon. And the scene is when he's at the University of Washington at Suzilo Library, and he has you know, essentially an epiphany that it's like five minutes before 8 p.m., the curfew. And every night he would kind of, at that point, run home to uh, make the curfew so he could be in compliance. But one night he decided to do something different. So let's, let's show this clip. One day, I'm dashing home. Hey, Gordon, it's five to eight. I grab my stuff and it take about five minutes to get home. So I'm just dashing home and uh, it hit me. A question that I should have faced earlier just hit me. How come I'm dashing home and all your timekeepers are still there? I didn't, it just needed the question to be raised. I knew I couldn't answer it, you know, uh, without saying I can't do it. I turned around and went back uh, to the library. Hey, what's, what's the matter? And uh, I said, well, you guys are here. You, oh, we got work to do. I said, I got work to do too. Uh, I decided if you guys are here, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with you. I'll go back when you guys are ready to go. Nobody turned me in. And I didn't take that until it hit me. And when it hit me, I knew, gosh, I can't do it. That's two-faced. Yeah, when I see that clip, I mean, yeah, Gordon took such a principled stand and, and he paid a price. He ended up incarcerated for months and months during the war. After, after refusing to obey the curfew, uh, the next thing that happened in Gordon's story is that the day came when everybody in uh, his part of Seattle was supposed to get on a bus and be taken off to um, the Assembly Center in Puyallup, Washington. Gordon uh, didn't get on the bus. And instead of um, getting on the bus, he sat down and he wrote a long, very carefully reasoned um, statement addressed to the FBI, explaining why he was refusing to be incarcerated. And, um, and in fact, became the last Japanese American person living uh, in Seattle as everybody else went off to camp. Um, and so he took that statement, he wrote this statement, and he, he went down to the FBI offices in downtown Seattle. And he walked in and he handed them that statement. And they looked at it and it turned out they already had a copy because somebody had informed on him. But now they had him and they didn't know what to do with him. So they spent the rest of that day driving Gordon around Seattle, trying to get him to the, the issue was he would not sign the registration form that would allow them to ship him off to camp. He just wouldn't sign it. He said, tie me up, put me in a car, drive me to camp, but I'm not going to sign the form. And the FBI did not know what to do with Gordon. They hadn't encountered anybody like this ever. And so um, the end of that day, they, they, they threw him to King County Jail. And, uh, and yes, he spent the rest of the war uh, in and out of jail and prison fighting a legal battle that eventually worked its way all the way up to, uh, to the Supreme Court. Yeah, and we could spend all night just talking about Gordon, but I'm going to move on to uh, the second one, Katsugo Miho, Katz Miho. And you know, he uh, grew up in Hawaii, and I'm so glad you included uh, Katz and the Japanese-American Hawaii story because it's very different than what happened on the mainland. So, Tell me a little bit about Katz. Yeah, so Katz, uh, Katz grew up on Maui uh, at a time when Maui and, and all the islands basically were run 
as big sugar cane and pineapple plantations. And of course, the plantation system was very racially stratified, very brutal working conditions. So, uh, but Katz grew up in that, in, in that environment. But he actually was a student at the University of Hawaii uh, when Pearl Harbor happened. In fact, he, he witnessed the bombing. He witnessed the attack on Pearl Harbor from the uh, roof of the, the residence hall that he was living in. And he was also a member of the ROTC. So he immediately ran across the street with um, hundreds of other young ROTC candidates, most of whom were Japanese American, actually. Um, and uh, was they were that afternoon formed into something called the Hawaii Territorial Guard. So the night of December 7th, 1941, uh, Katz um, found himself um, patrolling the Honolulu waterfront with a gun that he didn't know how to use, um, prepared to repel a Japanese invasion, which everybody expected would come on the heels of the, of the attack. He, he found himself in a really unique situation. The same time that he was patrolling the waterfront, his father, his family ran a small hotel on Maui. Uh, the same time that the cast was patrolling the waterfront, uh, his father, Katsuichi, was being taken into custody and thrown in the um, Maui County Jail. Okay, so we're going to uh, show a clip of uh, Katz Miho talking about um, the Hawaii Territory Guard and his uh, his role there. So let's let's run this clip. Our group of uh, University of Hawaii students were dropped off as guards over a area in the dark uh, on four-hour shifts. For two, three nights in a row, we were serving as, I don't know what we would have done because we were given a loaded rifle, we were given a loaded rifle, five rounds of ammunition. We didn't even know how to fire the gun. But we were given this rifle, we were told, you load it this way, this is the way, how you lock it, in case anything happens. And to this day, I wonder, what was if anything happened was what they were referring to, because not, not that nothing happened, but what if anything can happen? What were we supposed to do? Because we're not giving any kind of orders. A month and a half later, early in the morning, we got called up and said, hey, we're going to report down to Nanakila Intermediate School. And we woke up at about 2 o'clock in the morning. They woke us up at 2 o'clock. And then finally, about 5.30, a truck came by to pick us up. We were all fully packed and everything. We dropped us up at Nanakila. We wondered what was going on. We found out that the whole battalion was uh, assembly at uh, Lanakila, and then Major Frazier, who was the acting commander of the battalion, came up and told us point blank, right in straight in our faces, the reason why you are here this morning is because you, all you Americans of Japanese ancestry, I'm pretty sure he referred to the Americans of Japanese ancestry, because of your ethnic background, you are being discharge herein right off the bat, right as of now, you have been discharged from the Hawaiian territory, only the AJAs. And completely stayed a shock. Yeah, I, I really like that, that clip, because um, it shows you know, so much of his personality. I mean, the, the humor at the beginning about you know, the absurdity of, of these you know, young men not knowing how to fire these rifles. And even if they had to, they had five rounds. And then at the end, you know, just sort of, um, you know, how it felt, you know, to be essentially rejected um, after doing all they did. Yeah, and, and it was really traumatic. I mean, uh, these guys were assembled on this athletic field in Honolulu, um, you know, that night or early, early morning, pre-dawn darkness, and told that they were no longer welcome to serve because of their Japanese ancestry. And um, a number of the young men that were there that day said they could hear other other young men weeping in the darkness around them. It was a terrible blow to cats. It was a terrible blow uh, to to most of these young men who really wanted to do something uh, to serve their country. And um, so cats went home to uh, to Maui, got a job working as a contractor on a big building a base there. He, and he was eventually when uh, the 442nd was finally created a year later. He was able to enlist in the in the 442nd.
Okay, so we we you know we talked about Gordon Hirabayashi and Katz Miho. You just mentioned both of them were probably like these stellar students, kind of leaders in some ways. The, the third one is uh, Rudy Tokiwa, and and he's a, a different character uh, in my mind. I, yeah, I've I've a lot of fondness for Rudy because he was such a interesting kind of, and we talked about this kind of like a rascal of a person. T tell me about Rudy. You know, he's he, uh, we're going down to California, so tell me about. Who Rudy is. Yeah, Rudy. Rudy grew up on a farm in Salinas, California. Um, he was a student at Salinas High, and he he was kind of, he was kind of a rascal. When the FBI came shortly after Pearl Harbor to raid uh, his family's home or to uh, enter it and search for contraband, they found his father. His father had fought in World War One and had an American uniform. And they found this uniform and they threw it on the floor and actually walked on it, um, which infuriated uh, Rudy. Rudy's family uh, was one of those that was um, sent to the Poston camp in Arizona, one of the hottest and bleakest and most miserable of the camps in, in my estimation. But while he was at Poston, the uh, Roosevelt administration reversed course after first not allowing Japanese Americans to enlist, they decided they would create this, as you mentioned, all Japanese American segregated unit, the 442nd. At Poston, among young men of draft age, of surface age, there was this very fierce debate then that followed that as to whether they should or should not sign up for this new uh, unit. Many of them felt that they, they shouldn't fight for the government that had imprisoned them. Others, and Rudy was one of them, argued that, um, well, by serving, by fighting in Europe, maybe we can prove that we are loyal Americans, and perhaps when we come back, our parents and our families and we ourselves will be treated better for having served. So, um, so as I say, the debate went on. Rudy was one of those that uh, enlisted in the 442nd and went off to fight in Italy and then in uh, France. Yeah, I'm so glad you, you chose Rudy because you know with you know, Gordon you had someone who you know resisted uh, the government efforts. Uh, Katsumiho, the you know Japanese Hawaiian experience where families weren't incarcerated, and now you have Rudy who can really you know again you know sort of be that person to to describe what it was to have to be incarcerated along with the other 120,000 other Japanese Americans. You know, Rudy also was kind of an interesting uh, player when he was in the 442nd in Europe. You know, he was like a, a runner, so oftentimes he had a pretty good perspective of what was going on. And in particular, I want you to talk about there was that, you know, that period in like October 1944 where the 442nd uh, went through some really heavy fighting. And we're going to show a clip of Rudy talking about that, but can you set that up for us? Yeah, absolutely. So yes, in late October and early November of uh, 1944, the 442nd, after fighting very heroically in Italy, was shipped north to uh, the Franco-German border to the Vosges Forest, this very dark, mountainous, almost impenetrable terrain. Um, and they were given the task of uh, liberating a little town called Bruyere a village where a number of highways and railroads converged. And they fought and took heavy casualties, uh, liberating this French town, and but succeeded. And then they moved deeper into the Vosges forest to uh, take a place called Bifontaine and a place called Belmont. And um, so they fought for days under absolutely miserable conditions, muddy, rainy, sleety, snowy conditions. They were finally given leave to take a night or two to, to rest, so they went off and find barns or someplace to sleep. But then they were awakened in the middle of the night, and they were told to put their combat gear back on, uh, that they were going back into, into battle. And what had happened is that um, the commanding general, General Dahlquist, had ordered a group of what they called the Texas Division, a group of soldiers, mostly from Texas and Oklahoma. He had ordered them too far into the Vosges forest, into unreconnoitered territory. And they'd been cut off and surrounded by German forces. And they were trapped. And a number of them were grievously wounded. And they began to die. And they had very little in the way of um, food and medicine and no drinkable water. So Dahlquist sent uh, several other 
uh, groups of his Texas division up the mountain to try to break through and get them out, and, and nobody could. So finally, he uh, called on the 442nd, woke them up in the middle of the night, and sent them up the mountain. And uh, again, the fighting conditions were absolutely hellacious. They were fighting up extremely steep terrain. Machine gun fire was pouring down on them. Tank fire was pouring down on them. They fought for, for several days under awful conditions, um, but did finally break through and, and get the Texans, liberate the Texans. But then they actually were not allowed to come down off the mountain themselves. Dahlquist ordered them to continue deeper into the Vosges. And by the time they finally did come down, uh, they'd been absolutely decimated. Yeah. And in your, your book, you know, captures this so well in terms of the, you know, how, how much they, you know, they, they sacrificed, you know, at full strength, the, the 442nd is around 4,000 men, you know, three fighting uh, battalions and headquarters. And on that day, um, you know, they, uh, General Dahlquist, you know, when they finally came off the mountain, wanted to do what was called a retreat parade and to have the unit uh, march by him. And so the, the general is expecting, you know, a unit that has 4,000 men, you know, maybe with some casualties. On that day, there were under 800 left standing. You know, they were either killed, wounded, sick, you know, just unable to, to stand. And, and what we're going to show here is Rudy talking about that day and, and what he heard. So let's watch this clip. The 36th Division commander wanted the 442nd to pass in review. And so, and he said, all personnel of the 442nd will pass in review. So the 442nd passes in review. And like I say, you got three battalions plus headquarters, and they don't even have a battalion out there passing in review. So General Dalquist turned around and he said to the colonel, when I order everyone to pass in review, I mean the cooks and everybody will pass in review. And Chaplain Yamada said, this is the first time I saw the colonel cry. And he said, this is all I have left. I, I did this interview with Rudy uh, over 20 years ago. And every time I see it, you know, I, I think about, because uh, he goes on and he actually, um, you know, sheds more tears uh, thinking about, um, you know, all the guys that, that were left, um, you know, in Europe um, who died. And, and, and more than that, you know, for him, especially for him, because his family was incarcerated at, in Arizona Post and, and later on, and, and Rudy and others talk about, you know, how these men liberated, you know, the death camps in Germany as he went through and, and the irony of all that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, all these guys, these were, these were hard things for them to talk about. Oftentimes, you know, by the time you sat down and talked to them, um, they oftentimes, my experience was they often hadn't told their children a lot about their wartime experience. It was, it was really painful stuff for them. They all lost a lot of friends. So that Rudy's company, K Company, was one of the lead companies that went up the mountain uh, to get those Texans out. And uh, at the beginning of the battle for Bruyere, I believe there were 188 men fighting in K Company. And by the time they finally came down out of the mountains, only 17 of them were still ambulatory, still still walking. Yeah. So let, let's go to the, uh, uh, the, the fourth man, and that's uh, Fred Shiyosaki. So we're coming back to... The Pacific Northwest. Uh, Fred uh, grew up uh, in Spokane, and and what's interesting about Fred's experience, uh, you know, for those of uh, of us who know Japanese American history, if you were east of essentially the Cascade Mountains in, in Washington State, uh, that was not the exclusion zone. So, as a Japanese American, uh, his family and he were not removed, uh, you know, to be placed in camps. So, talk about uh, Fred and and. Who he was. Yeah, so Fred, uh, as you say, grew up in Spokane. His family um, ran a, um, a laundry, and they had a little apartment over the laundry. And, and Fred grew up in, in that apartment. And he was a student at Rogers High School in, in Spokane. Um, when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, he was one of the young men that immediately tried to go downtown Spokane to enlist. And he was told that he couldn't enlist, that he was 
an enemy alien. And it was just this complete shock to Fred. He, he, could, he couldn't understand it. He couldn't process it. So he wound up spending the next year going to Gonzaga University, where he was one of the very few men on campus because all the other young men had gone off to war. And he found it absolutely humiliating. Um, but when the, when the 442nd was finally created, he got on a train and, and went off uh, to war. And he also was a, uh, a member of K Company, that lead com one of the two lead companies that went up the mountain um, uh, to get at the Texans. And, and Fred, um, Fred lost a lot of friends uh, in that battle. And uh, it really, uh, it, it clearly affected him later in life. Yeah, I mean, Fred and and Fred uh, lived a long life. In fact, he just passed away earlier this year. Yeah, and and so um, yeah, I was I was so fond of Fred because he was actually able to share some of his emotions. You know, this this clip uh, we're going to show is it's actually after the war, and he's returning to Spokane by train, and he's in Washington D.C. and he meets one of the uh, men from the. Uh, the Lost Battalion. So let's let's show this clip. Uh, we were I was on the train by myself, and we stopped in Washington D.C. And uh, I was, you know, from the from that railroad station, you could see the Capitol building. I'm sure that must have been the Union Station. And I was sitting there looking out the window, and this GI came out of books. I think he's a book sergeant, and he stopped and he looked at me, and he looked at my patch. He says, "Hey, you were the 442nd." Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, uh, were you at the Lost Battalion? And I said, yeah, I was there. He says, I was in there. So he was one of the 200 men that you rescued? Yeah, yeah. And, he, and, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, I, anyway, it's one of those things. I, 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 I could just feel myself getting really, I was angry. God, and I turned to him and I said, uh, do you know how many men we lost? We lost getting you guys out of there. You know how many of my friends died in there? And, uh, well, he said, you don't, you know, you know, if you guys were in there, we'd have come after you. And uh, I shook my head and I said, well, he said, anyway, I want to thank you, you know. He put out his hand and I turned away and looked out the window. You know, I remember when I did that interview and when Fred, um, you know, wouldn't shake his hand. It, it, it surprised me, and I, and I asked him why he didn't. And he said, you know, he, he actually was ashamed that he didn't. Um, but the hurt was still there. And, and I, I think we're so fortunate that we had Fred because he was able to really share his feelings, his emotions. I mean, he talked about, like, PTSD and, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, Fred, it surprised me when I first uh, saw that uh, clip, too, because um, Fred was sort of naturally a very affable guy. Um, his army nickname was Rosie because his cheeks would turn pink when he got excited. But um, he's a really sweet guy, really nice guy, and 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 very affable generally. So the fact that he wouldn't shake that that man's hand surprised me, but it it didn't in another sense, and that is that um, when you see all these stories that these young men told about their experiences, when they came home, they were in a lot of pain, uh, a lot of psychological pain. Um, over what had happened to them and to their friends. Law Fred, I may have mentioned, lost a very close friend in that in that battle. So um, Fred um, moved, when he got home, he moved back into the laundry, uh, the apartment over the laundry with his parents for a time. And um, for those first few months at least, um, his mother had to wake him up almost every night because he was screaming, screaming in his sleep. So, you know, PTSD was uh, almost uh, among the men I focused on and, and many of the others that I, I studied their stories. It was almost a universal experience that they came home with some degree of, of PTSD. You know, I distinctly remember us, you know, talking about the things happening in our country as you were starting to re you know, research and write the book. And some of those things were now happening again. They're, they're, they're rhyming. I mean, things like family uh, detention and family separation, uh, placed in, in detention facilities, you know, camps that were reminiscent of, of Japanese Americans, and in some cases, even the same locations. And so all this was coming back. And I was wondering, how did that affect you in, in writing the book? 
Yeah, so it was very much uh, uh, an interesting experience for me in that uh, every day, you know, I, I, I'd be researching and reading about these hardworking Japanese immigrant families, and then coming home and watching the news and seeing all this anti-immigrant rhetoric. I was reading about people being forced out of their homes and incarcerated in, in camps at the same time that there was all this um, rhetoric about the southern border and, and children were being in, incarcerated. So through the whole process of writing the book, um, there were echoes between what I was uh, thinking about and reading about during the day and then what I was hearing on the news when I came home that evening. And so you know, I don't know that it changed anything that I wrote in the book because I was writing the facts as I uncovered them. But the parallels were obvious and disturbing and inescapable. There was a systemic kind of racism at work concerning Asian Americans in particular being deployed every day against immigrants uh, in our own time. I'm not sure it changed anything I wrote in the book, but it certainly motivated me to tell the story as clearly and as passionately as I could, because I think it's really important that we understand that this is something that keeps coming up in, in American history. That's Daniel James Brown from Portland Arts and Lectures in 2021. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Liguori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to Literary Arts Marketing staff Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. The show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.